It's brilliant to be here this morning. Thanks for your welcome. I know a number of folk that are here, um, and I've known Pastor John from a way back, and, and um, it's been lovely to renew acquaintance. I had a fabulous time at Kingdom Come, and it was brilliant. And, and I see you're just continuing it on. That was brilliant this morning, so it was. So I, as it's my first time here, I thought I would give you a couple of facts about myself, okay? Are you up for that? Okay, right. Now, I don't know, this is risky, but I'm going to say it anyway. My, one of my favorite television programs is Would I Lie to You? Anybody like that? Okay, so, so I'm going to follow on in the trait of that, and I'm going to give you three things about me, but only two of them are true. Okay, there is a lie in it. I promise you, once I finish this, no more lies. Okay. So, here's the two truths and a lie. Okay. I dated Karen, my wife, when she was still at school. And now we are over 40 years married. We have three grown-up married daughters and 16 grandchildren. Number two. I once drove into the town, parked the car, bought a pair of shoes, and got the bus home. <laughs> when I walked up the road and saw my car not outside the house, I thought it was stolen <laughs> until I remembered where I left it and had to get the bus back into town. And three, just last week, Karen phoned me with just the word, hi. I said, who's this? And she said, quite annoyingly, it's Karen. I said, Karen who? She said, you know, the Karen you've been married to for over 40 years, you remember me, don't you? Okay, that's the three facts, okay. Two of them are true, one's a lie. Which is the lie? A, B, or C? A? Caught. I need, you need marriage guidance, whoever said that. <laughs> of course it's C. It's C. Okay. Yeah, the first part about Carl and I dating when we were just, when she was just 15 and being married over 40 years, having three children, 16 grandchildren, absolutely true. I know I had five of them out yesterday. Unfortunately, the part about me forgetting my car, getting the bus home is also true. But the part... <laughs> You know what this morning's all about? It's supposed to be about holiness, but it's about transparency. Okay, right. The part about me not recognizing Karen's voice on the phone is false, and I'm sure you got that, at least some of you did. Do you know why it's false? Because after more than 40 years living with her, she just has to say simply on the phone, hi, and I can recognize it. And that's something I think that every single one of us, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, and I am known of them. And, and when you've got a, a relationship with God at all, you should have no problem recognizing his voice, knowing what he is saying, and following it through. It's all about two things. It's about intimacy, and it's about relationship. Intimacy. 
and relationship. And that's, I, I, when I was asked if I would speak on holiness, I kind of stepped back a bit, but let me just affirm this right from the word go. Holiness is not about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about who you are. A.W. Tozer, theologian and author, writes this. True religion confronts earth with, he wrote this over a hundred years ago. True religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. He goes on to say, this message doesn't, does not grow out of these times, but it is appropriate to them. It is called forth by a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty. I love that word, majesty. Jack Hayford wrote a song about it years ago, majesty, worship his majesty. And, and it, it speaks to me, it's a better word to me than holiness. It's about that sense of awe you get when you come into the presence of God. It was reflected in many people when the queen died and she was lying in state and people in their droves came 24-7, 24 hours a day for those four days that, that she was lying in state. And many of them says, I was surprised, but as I was passing the coffin, I started to cry. There was something in that room that caused me to feel something deeply. And, and I, I sense one of the things, when I, when I gave my life to Christ, the first book that I ever bought, I could tell you what it was. It was a book by Smith Wigglesworth, and it was called Ever Increasing Faith. And Smith Wigglesworth wrote that book, and he shared in the book, this is me, just a young Christian, my concept of church was not the supernatural, was, was none of those things. But I remember picking up that book and reading, reading about how that Wigglesworth came in to a room, into a house where a, a young child had died. And that young child, this was only in, in, a, in a, like a two up, two down house. And, and the child was lying in the coffin, had been dead for 24 hours. And, and Wigglesworth came to see the people. He didn't know them, but he, he felt strangely drawn to the people. And, 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 and he came with someone else. And, and the people were there having the wake. And, and, and he said, where is the child? And they led him into the room. And he went into the room. And he stayed in the room for six hours to the degree that the parents were getting upset and had informed the person that was with him, tell Mr. Wigglesworth, he better come out. We are concerned what is happening in there, because he had locked the door. And we will send for the police. And shortly after that, they heard the door unlocked, and Wigglesworth walked out with the child walking beside him. And as I, as I read that, I felt there's got to be more. There's got to be more and, and than, than, than what 
church represents today, and that was back over, well, 50 years ago. And, and this is what Tozer is saying. That, that He said this here. He said, I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted one for one so low, so ignoble, as to be utterly unworthy of a thinking, worshipping church. This she has done, not deliberately, but little by little, without her knowledge. And her very unawareness only makes her situation all the more tragic. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from the one basic error in our religious thinking, with our loss of consciousness of the divine presence. I know John, and I know the leadership of this church have one overwhelming hunger. I know it from the worship even, and that is to experience the presence of Jesus in a very powerful and real way. He says this here, we have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life in the Spirit. The decline of the knowledge of the Holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as he is, majestically and with a holy awe. Please don't miss this. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The essence, listen, this is the sort of stuff that I hear Bill Bill Johnson speak about. And this guy spoke about it a hundred years ago. He says, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are totally unworthy of him. Romans 1, 21 says this, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. And as a result, their minds became dark and confused. He doesn't merely take away. See, Jesus doesn't merely take away a believer's sin. He does more. He breaks the power of sin. 
See, my fear is that as we rightly celebrate and in some quarters rediscover all that Christ has saved us from, we are giving little thought and making little effort concerning all that Christ has saved us to. Shouldn't those most passionate about the gospel and God's glory also be those most dedicated to the pursuit of godliness, brackets, holiness? I worry that there is an enthusiasm gap. And in many churches, no one seems to mind. Now listen, this is important. The commands of Scripture are not given to motivate believers to try harder, to become something they aren't already. Rather, the commands of Scripture flow naturally from the proclamations of Scripture about your and my true identity. Let me give you this example. Just this past month, our queen died, and Prince Charles became King Charles III. With that title came a load of other stuff, like palaces, residences in Scotland and England, along with a load of corresponding responsibilities that were new to him. Now listen, none of that happened because of Charles's performance as Prince of Wales or how hard he worked, or how good he was. It happened automatically. It was his divine right simply, now listen, because someone died. Simply because someone died. You know, that's exactly the same with us. What happens next is Charles doesn't work harder to prove who he is being king. Is who he is, not what he does. Being king is who he is, not what he does. Holiness is not trying harder. intimacy. You see, there was something what those folk, what caused those folk the experience that passed by a cassette with a, 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 a little woman in it. But she radiated majesty, at least the title that she inherited, that position of queen the influence that, that radiated from that impacted everyone that came past to the degree that some cried, some, some just some saluted, some got down on one knee. Now, whether you think that is appropriate or is, is beside the point, the point is this, and, it, and it's this, because of who we are, and because of who he is, demands response that we acknowledge majesty when we're in the presence of it. Demands that. I, first time I heard that song, I was, I was part of a group way back years ago in the early 80s. And... Um, 
we, we were in a little place called Ponty Praise. It's where Tom Jones comes from. Okay, in case you didn't know. And uh, so, and we were in that little place. And I was staying in a home, myself along with another guy. We were staying just in homes. We didn't stay in hotels we did, for this time anyway. We stayed in a home. And, um, and in that home, there was a wee boy. And he was only about six or seven. His father was in prison and his mother was dead. The father, full ramifications of it, I don't know, but he was driven to distraction. He was riddled with depression, everything else that came with that. And the mother was very demanding. And while a little chap slept in his cot, at only about three-year-old at this time, the father, in a rage, went in and murdered the mother. And he was in doing time. This little chap was became the responsibility of the father's parents. They were saved. They were on fire for God. They were shattered by what had happened to their son in prison. And, and, and the whole aspect of it. And we were in a bedroom. And at six o'clock every jolly morning, this little lad woke up singing, Majesty, worship his majesty. And, 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 and something of what the parents overcame in that awful situation transmitted into that little lad. And you know, whatever desperation the situation might be, if you get a glimpse of the majesty of God in your life, it will turn you around. It will turn you absolutely around. You see, what we are to become in our behavior is rooted in who we already are in Christ. The goal of the Christian life is simply to display in our lives the truth of who we truly are. What the try-harder solution does is confuse the effect with the cause. It puts the passenger carriage before the engine. It implicitly assumes that what the believer does determines who the believer is rather than vice versa. It makes behavior the means to acquiring a new identity rather than making a new believer the means of acquiring new behavior. It makes the foundation for growth, the goal of growth, and thereby often hinders genuine growth. It reverses everything and puts the ought, the acting, before the being. In contrast to the try-harder solution, the New Testament generally speaks of godly behavior as following from the believer's identity in Christ. If we as believers have character and behavior problems, listen, 
If we as believers have character and behavior problems, the fundamental problem is that we don't see and experience ourselves as we truly are. I used to, as a young Christian, literally put my hands in my pockets when we came to, to here we are in your presence, lifting holy hands to you. Because I was one of those. When I got saved right back, I was given a list of do's and don'ts. Now, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. And, and literally, it was forced to me, into me, that everything was about behave. You want to be holy, then you got to try harder. And that nearly killed me. And it nearly killed a lot of people. I remember looking down into the car, we're going to have communion. And I remember looking at a mature Christian, a mature Christian saved for many, many years. And when the communion came, he passed it by. He let it pass by. And I seen it. And I wasn't going to let this go. And I went to him after the meeting. Didn't call him out, but I went to him after the meeting. I said, Sam, why did you pass the emblems by? Oh, he says, Pastor, I had, I had a bad week. And there were issues. And, and I probably said stuff that I shouldn't have said. And, and I didn't want to be a hypocrite, so a pastor. I said, do you not realize you are being a hypocrite? See, if I see you next week taking communion, what that's going to say to me is, you believe you're good enough to take it. That's the total opposite. Total. Of course, put it right what you've done that's wrong. Put it right. It says that if, if, if any of you have somewhat against someone, put it right and then partake of the emblems. And this is, a, so often there are church, I see joy in this house. And, and that comes from the removal of guilt, the removal of performance, the removal of that. See, if our faith is going to be powerful and transformative, it is going to have to be imaginative and experiential. I, I read the Bible, and you see when I read about the 5,000, I'm in that field. I'm getting a sandwich served by Peter. I live it. If I was to say to you, I'm going to describe my wife to you, and tell you she's five foot three, she's got a long, can't even remember what color her. <laughs> I do, I do. It's kind of, kind of orbony, reddy color. Okay. I, I would be giving you information. But while I'm describing her, I get a vision. I see. You see this church? See this building? See this here? John Ash, Asman, and the leadership team seen this before it actually happened. You've got to see things. And if you want to experience the depth of intimacy, you've got to see him. You've got to, what some of those people experienced passing by that coffin experienced. It is the Spirit-inspired seeing of Jesus, Paul said, that changes our being. We are human beings, not human doings. As we see his glory, we are transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. And this is the essence, how the fruit of the Spirit is produced in our lives. 
when we cease from striving in our own effort and yield to the Holy Spirit, and when our faith ceases to be merely intellectual uh, and rather becomes experiential and concrete, our lives begin to reflect Christ's image. I shared with you about Wigglesworth. I, I remember speaking to his grandson. Leslie Wigglesworth was the international missions director for Elam for a number of years, and I had the, the privilege of talking to him and, and speaking with Leslie. He was a lovely man. And I, I said to him, you know, this book really grabbed me. I've been, been just reading his testimonies and saying all sorts. And he says, George, you need, to, you need to know this about Smith. He says, Smith had an incredible faith, but his faith was linked to his intimacy with God. He says, I could tell you this. Smith lived in London, and there was a woman that came from Scotland and this is way back in the 30s, traveled down from Scotland, and she rapped on the door of Smith's house. The, 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 the uh, housekeeper came to the door, opened the door, and she went to Mr. Wigglesworth. He was studying in the back, and he says, uh, Smith came to the door, and the woman said, Mr. Wigglesworth, you need to come. My husband is dying of cancer. And God told me that I've got to go to you and bring you back to Scotland to pray for him. And he said, Smith just simply said to her, he didn't tell me, I'm sorry, your place is with your husband. He didn't try to be somebody that just could demonstrate the miraculous. He knew who he was. He knew what his limitations were. He knew the realm and the remit of where he demonstrated. And he only did it. But when he did, when he heard from God, he immediately went and did it. Like that young lad who was dead for so long and brought back to life. You see, as believers, we need enlargement, intimacy, and holiness gives us that. It gives us that. And it gives us eyes to see what no one else can see. As I've said before, what you sit in today was seen first by John Ash and Asman, the architect, and the leadership team of Journey before it was ever constructed. We live in a box in every area of our life physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, financially. We let lines be drawn around us, that box, around that box, in, and we allow that box to limit us and limit what we can imagine. Bill Gates knew how to imagine. Bill Gates is a Harvard dropout, many of you will know, and a techno geek. Why did he drop out? Because he saw something. The result of what he saw is the Microsoft Corporation with 60,000 employees and a personal net worth of over $100 billion. What did he see? He saw a world of computers with no limits to the possibilities. Art Linkletter, many of you won't have heard 
but he had a good friend called Walt Disney. Art Linklater had assumptions about the desolate orchard that Walt Disney showed him. He assured it was valueless and empty of opportunity, but Walt Disney challenged those assumptions. He saw the door where there was none, and he went through it. Art couldn't see, so he drew back, missed an opportunity which could have changed his future. If you can't see it before it exists, you will never see it in reality. If you can't imagine it, you draw back and miss the possibilities. If you assume it will never be, then you can't imagine it. I want you this morning to begin to imagine those folk in your family that are as hard as nails and you've tried to get them out to church and they won't come out and you imagine them sitting beside you. I, one of the things that, that I, I, I can remember and with this I'll draw to a close. Okay. My mother, when my father died, Neither my mother or father were saved. My father gave his life to the Lord six weeks before he died. He had cancer. I was 24 when my dad died. My mom, we thought, because the three of us had a sister and another brother, and we were saved. And we believed that mom will get saved now because dad got saved and she'll see that. And, and that'll happen. She didn't. As a matter of fact, she had to drink. And she couldn't. She became almost addicted to it. I, I couldn't say that she was an alcoholic, but, but it was her comfort. And one day I came in and she was at the bottom of the stairs. She had fallen down the stairs. She broke her neck. And she was in hospital. And... Um, she had a collar. She lived with that collar for long enough. And I remember we had a guy called George Miller was coming over to, to the church. And George was a brilliant gospel preacher. See, um, originally from Jamaica, black guy from Jamaica. He was a brilliant communicator. But he also had a fabulous healing ministry. And George did a conference in the church, and I invited mom. But before I invited her, we had a prayer meeting, and I encouraged people, what I'm encouraging you today, and, and I said, Lord, give me, give me something that I can hold on to with regard to my mom. And God gave me a picture. And the picture of my mom was her with her hands up in the air, he didn't, he didn't tell me she was going to get saved. He just showed me this picture of her worshiping, which was the antithesis of everything that was going on in her life. And so I invited her. Because I thought to myself, well, if she was worshiping God, she must have got saved because that's the outworking of it. That's the fruit of it. You don't worship God to get saved. You worship God because you've had an experience of God. That's the outworking fruit of it. So, bottom line was, I invited her. And George made an appeal, and mum went up. 
And she gave her, she, she got healed. First thing, got the collar off, she got healed. And, and George said to her, I, I believe that God is, is going to heal you, not because of anything in your life, but because he is full of compassion and love for you. And so the collar came off. She was great. Never put it on again. That was it. Totally healed. That was it. End of story, as I thought that it was the end of the story. About three months later, George contacted me and he said, George, I'm doing a couple of meetings in Belfast and I have a spare Sunday evening. Would you like me to come? And, and I said, yeah, George, brilliant. And so mum was going well, everything was fine. And I and, and brought mum to it. And the place was packed out and George preached. And then the worship came on. And I'm standing at the back of the room and my brother was there. And I said, Jim, look at mum. And there she was standing with her hands in the air. You see, if you can see it, if you can just see it, maybe, maybe the leadership of, of, of Journey here are, are seeing even a larger venue. I don't know. But you've got to see it first. You've got to see it. Because if you can see it, if the worship team would just come up. You see, the power of imagining didn't originate with man. It's a God word. It is part of the very nature of God. What is the first thing the Bible tells us about God? What did he do? In the beginning, he made everything and everything that God made, he saw first. All that was invisible was in the heart of God before it ever became visible for man to enjoy. Jeremiah 1.5 says this, before you were in your mother's womb, I saw you. And I appointed you. All that was invisible was in the heart of God before it ever became visible for man to enjoy. God could see it all. He looked at emptiness and saw a planet, animals, plants, and man. God saw them and he made them reality. Why is imagining so important? Because God put in every individual, in you and in me, the power of imagining, which gives birth to vision. Without imagining, you can't see potential in front of you. Without imagining, you only look at things that are there. But when you begin to imagine what God might do, you begin to see beyond. I want to motivate you to ask this morning. I cannot promise what answer you will receive. I cannot dictate to God how big your dream should be. I cannot. That's between you and God. But there is one thing that I can do. I can tell you to ask big. 
ask big. I can tell you to take the lid off your imagining and take a risk. Take a chance. Move into the realm of imagining, the realm of faith. Take a chance. Move into the realm of imagining that realm of the supernatural. As long as you live in the realm of the natural, the realm of not rational reasoning, you never begin to dream. Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein said this, imagination is more important than knowledge. For knowledge is limited to all we know and understand, while imagination embraces all there ever will be to know and understand. You know, this morning, I just want to say in closing, God loves you. That's why he wants a relationship with you. Do you know the reason that you have any feeling toward God? It's because he first loved you. It's because he first desired to have that relationship with you. Bless you this morning as we worship the Lord. Thank you.